The Leap Foundation proudly presents the Meet the Mentor podcast with New York Times bestselling author, motivational speaker, and celebrity dentist, Dr. Bill Dorfman. Apollo Ono is the most decorated Winter Olympian in American history, with eight medals to his name. He came from humble beginnings, raised by a single dad. His thrilling victories and trademark goatee made him a global icon. He is also the owner of a pair of skates that are now resting in the Smithsonian Institute. He popularized, probably single-handedly popularized his sport. His Spots on NBC got the highest ratings of all the Winter Olympics. He's a New York Times best-selling author of Zero Regrets. He was season four winner of Dancing with the Stars with Juliana Huff being the youngest winner. He did the Kona Marathon in under 10 hours, which is a miracle because most marathoners never even reach that. He's worked with 30 of the top Fortune 100 companies and he has recently started a new company called Allison Sciences, which does supplements. Let's give it up for Apollo! Thank you. How many of you guys have met an Olympic gold medalist in life, in person? I'm okay, how many haven't? All right, so this is a thing that I always wanted to know. Becoming an Olympic gold medalist doesn't happen overnight. It's years and years and years of practice. At what age did you really think, I can do this? Like, I can really win a gold medal and be the best in the world? Uh, that, well, that's a great question, Bill. Um, so I began my career at the age of 12. Uh, I'm from Seattle, and like many families, I, my career began by watching the Winter Olympics with my father in our living room, and I saw a sport that was so incredibly different. I used to want to play football, basketball, baseball, traditional American sports. Um, obviously, based up upon my height, you can see that basketball is pretty much out the window. Um, swimming didn't go so well, although I was state champion, but... Then I got to a certain age group and I was about half the height of everybody else. Um, and then I saw the sport of short track speed skating which really spoke to me on different levels. It was, it was young, it was fresh, it was fast. It looked completely impossible simply for the fact that you know, these guys were wearing samurai swords on their feet. And if you've never seen this sport live, um, it's entirely different on television versus seeing it in person. Uh, you know, they go 35 to 40 miles an hour inside of a hockey rink. They pull up to two and a half G forces on one leg. So to give you an equivalent, um, that's like a 400-pound one-legged squat repeatedly on one leg in the corner over and over again. Uh, and they wear these like ridiculously tight outfits that make them look like superheroes. So here I was at the age of 12 years old. I'm like, that looks like the coolest sport in the world. My dad said no to football because he didn't want me to get hurt. He said no to boxing because he didn't want me to get hurt. And now I saw this sport. And I'm like, well, this looks seemingly a little bit safe, um, not really knowing what I was going to get myself into. So I, you know, I was thrust into this sport. 
Um, I didn't really have any real coaching, but I had a very raw natural talent that accelerated my learning process. And upon, upon this, I kind of found this beautiful love for the sport that I didn't really know existed. And that's how my career really began, was kind of alone skating in, on a hockey rink in weird, you know, odd hours where no one was really there. Um, and then kind of catching and learning by seeing other skaters upon which I was being invited to join a development program to really advance my skills to another level. But, but at what age did you actually say, Apollo, I can do this. Like, I can actually win a medal. Where did that happen? Like, really early on, in the middle, near the end? I would say probably at the age of 16, 17, when, um, and it really, really wasn't because of myself. I didn't really know how good I really was. At the age of 14, I was number one in the US. So when I reached the age of 17, uh, you know, I, I was winning races, I was winning World Cups. It was starting to sink in, but I didn't really understand the potential of what I had within me until I started to hear my coaches talking to other coaches and saying, this is the new prodigy of the United States. This is our saving grace. This is the kid who potentially will take us from having zero medals in Olympic, in Olympic finals to being the savior and, and, uh, and going on. So it was kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because I, you know, I hear this, and now I have all this additional pressure, which I didn't know existed. I didn't know how good I was, um, but it was also kind of something like a, a reaffirmation to say, wow, I do have something special here. How far can I push this? So based on that, I know a little bit about you, and um, you know, we keep telling these guys, and it's really amazing here because they keep hearing from successful people. They keep hearing the same things over and over again. We're not priming them. But I know in your case in particular, athletes, medalists, winners do things that other people aren't willing to do. Successful people go that extra mile. Tell them the story about how you wore your skates everywhere you went. Sure. Um, and I know you, you know, everyone here has been, you guys have been hand selected to be part of this incredible program to hear from amazing speakers in this curriculum to really enrich yourselves towards success, right? Because that's ultimately why you're here. Uh, in the Olympic space, um, we had coaches, we had sports scientists, we had biomechanists, bio, you know, biomechanic teams, but overall, the single most important drive and factor was really yourself. Um, it didn't matter how good my coach was. It didn't matter what type of, quote, resources were available. The only thing that really mattered at the end of the day was how much I was really willing to take it, how much I wanted to win, how much I wanted to really push myself. So, you know, I was telling Bill this, this story uh, about a little over a month ago, and I was telling him how, you know, I used to analyze all of my competitors. I became a complete fanatic to the point where I was almost psychotic about my competition. I used to watch them when they would walk into the ice rink. I would watch them what they'd eat. I'd watch every single mannerism because to me, it was like a game of poker or a game of chess. The better I knew my opponents, the better I could figure out when they felt good, when they felt strong, or when they were a little bit fatigued. And I would be able to use that to my advantage when I raced against them. So it was a highly skilled psychological game more than anything else. But for me, the sport was so important and I wanted that the sport to be something that was completely natural. So when you walk out of the end of this, this room, your natural gait, what you call it, the natural way to just walk, that cadence, that rhythm, is something that's natural to you as a human being. Uh, for me, skating was not natural. Although people say sports seems natural, you're still playing a sport that is really not designed for a human being, especially a sport like short track speed skating where you're supposed to be crunched up into like a little ball 
um, and you're wearing skates and you're balancing on a 17 inch blade that's 1.1 millimeters thick. So there's nothing natural about that situation. So what I did was I started to wear my skates to sleep. And, people, and all my teammates were like, this guy's crazy, man. I don't know what's going on with this guy. But in my head, I was like, okay, crazy as it may be, the more comfortable I am in my skates, the more natural it feels to me, the more natural I'll be on the ice. So I'm not kidding. When I used to drive to the ice rink in the morning, so there's a specific technique in short track speed skating that requires your hips to be pointed into the corner. So you basically, you want your hips to be pointed in and this will be the direction in which you can curve around the corner, okay? So I used to sit in my car, instead of just driving normally like this, I used to literally sit in my car with my hip tilted up and my hand like this, so this would be a completely natural movement. And so people, you know, in sports scientists used to say, well, this is an unnatural, you wanna keep your body balanced. I was on the other side of the spectrum. I was in an arena where I was like, look, if I need to take my performance to another level, what can I do today, right here and now, over the next 24 hours, maximize my opportunity for performance enhancement, right? And that really came from a mindset more than anything else. And I'm sure you, everyone here has heard that many, many times before, in sports or in business or in school or in life, uh, timing, skill set, resources, these things are all an important integral part, but the real, real value here is something that we, I think we all carry within ourselves and it is that mental strength, it is that high performance mechanism that we carry inside of our brains and there's no one that can take anything about that, they take it away. And that was my single strongest attribute in throughout my entire career. I was never the most talented, I was never usually the most uh, I was never the fastest guy on the ice. I was never the most perhaps um, skilled in terms of technique, but I knew when I got to every single start line, when I looked to my left and I looked to my right, I was able to smile internally and say to myself, you know what? I know there was absolutely nothing more I could have done. And that's a very difficult place to be in, right? Because being an, being an Olympic athlete, you're, you're a perfectionist by nature. You can always pinpoint and find different arenas and areas in which you can improve upon but I used to go to sleep every single night and kind of ask myself, revolving these questions like, okay, is this enough? Did I do enough today? Could I have done more? And every single day, most of the time, and I'm sure you do this you know, routinely, was, yeah, I can. There's another 1%, there's another half percent. And to give you a little bit of perspective on, on what an Olympic you know, lifestyle or Olympic athlete's life is about, it, it's significantly different than a professional athlete, right? Where there's off seasons and on season, right? So you think about an Olympic athlete's life performance and there's, you know, there's four years in between each Olympic Games. So you compete once every four years. That's, where, that's when the Olympics are occurring, okay? And upon that Olympic Games, you have Olympic trials, and then you have the Olympic Games. And the Olympic Games are two weeks long. So you have an athlete who trains four years of their life towards a race, let's call, let's use my race as an example. 40 seconds long was my race, okay? So four years of your life is completely dedicated towards a chance at glory of winning gold, which only lasts 40 seconds long. Okay, so I think back to that, and I'm like, okay, I was crazy as hell to even think that I was gonna do something like this because the chances of my success were so low in comparison to the variable change that could have happened. So you think about that, right? In short track speed skating, you don't have your own lane. You have guys who can bump you, they can knock you down, you can get disqualified, you can slip, you can fall. You may get sick during those two weeks when the Olympic Games happens. You may be sick for the Olympic trials and not even make the team to have a chance to win at the Olympics. So when you think about the guys who cross the finish line in an Olympic race, okay, so you have the four years for 40 seconds, and then the difference between first place 
And fourth place, the guy who just missed getting a medal, right? They only give gold, silver, bronze, is literally this much. Four guys just went by in that time span. So four years of your life. And sometimes people, you know, you think about this and they, they train for four years. They don't make their first Olympic team. And they say, okay, well, like, I want to do it again. I love this sport. I love what I'm doing. I'm going to do it one more time. I'm going to dedicate myself one more time, give myself one more chance to becoming a part of this Olympic team, calling myself an Olympic athlete. So they train basically eight years of their life or even 12 years of their life at potentially one chance at having perfection at Olympic Games in a scenario that you cannot prepare for because when you have an arena of 40,000 fans screaming, you can't replicate that. There's no Olympic experience before, no matter how much mental training or visualization you've done in the past, when you arrive at the Olympic Games, it's an entirely new perspective and it's an entirely new arena. So the energy, the first Olympic experience that I have, my heart rate on my first Olympic race was like 180 and my regular resting heart rate is like 62. So it was more than, you know, almost three times, you know, almost at its maximum and the race hasn't even started yet. So my body's starting to fatigue before I even start. So I just wanted to give you that perspective because of the chance that was required and the chance that was at hand for me to become, or any Olympic athlete, to become an Olympic athlete and then go on to win a medal is so minute and so little. Eight years of your life dedicated towards a race that seemingly anything could happen, 40 seconds long of perfection, in which four guys go by. You could either get first or you can get fourth just off the podium. So when you finish that race, and let's say you got fourth, well, what happened? Are you going to look back on your career and say, wow, you know, there's so many nights when I was out partying or I wasn't eating properly or I wasn't resting, I wasn't totally committed towards my goal and dreams. Could I have done better? Should I have done better? I could have changed this. I didn't want to have those in my mentality. I'd rather be able to finish that race fourth place and say, you know what, there's nothing more I could have done which is a very difficult and rare place to be in. It is, especially after all that training, you know. But what would you say was the biggest obstacle that you had to get over to make yourself, to be a champion? Yeah, um, I, the biggest obstacle for me personally uh, was, was myself. Um, I had all the skill set, I had the work ethic, uh, I had the talent to beat anybody in the world. Um, but like anything, you know, when you're going up against a new challenge or you're trying to break a new record or you're doing something that has never been done before, uh, you have two voices sometimes. One is telling you, you can do this. You're incredible. You have, you have confidence. Anything is possible. You can break all records. Put your mind to it. Be strong. And then you have this other voice and this other sh shoulder, and it's like splitting hairs, right? Uh, this, this voice says, you're tired. You can't do it. You're not good enough. Uh, the other athletes are training harder. They're better than you. Uh, you should give up now. Um, and so there's this constant battle internally that I had with myself throughout my whole career. This, by the way, this never went away. Um, that voice is always there. Uh, but my ability to comprehend and disengage from that negative side of being a human being is all about. And instead of focusing on only the positive aspects, because that's really the only thing that really provides value. Focusing on something that's negative within your career, within your current mindset is not going to do anything for you. So I think recognizing, okay, look, yes, these are natural human emotions. I'm, you know, I'm about to leg press, you know, 2000 pounds in a leg press. This voice is saying, Apollo, this is going to kill you. This is going to drive you through the ground and you're never going to be able to skate ever again. 
do I want to listen to that voice or do I want to listen to the voice of, of confidence and say, yes, you can do this. You're going to fire every single muscle fiber in your body. This is something you've trained your entire life for and then you push that weight up. Um, every single human being on the planet has these skill sets. They have that mentality. It's really up to us to, to turn them on. And sometimes we need a mentor. Sometimes we need a program just like this to reignite or reinvigorate something within us that we didn't know potentially that even existed or at least show us a blueprint or uh, some kind of a, a process or a formula to success. Um, but innately, we all carry this. It's in our gene. It's in who we are as human beings. It's really up to us to capture that, hold it, and to push that strength forward. All right, I know this is going to be a hard one to answer. But what did it feel like, man? I mean, I, I mean, I can't even imagine like you just skate across the line. You look up gold. I mean, what's that feel like? We'll never know it. Maybe some of us. I won't. Maybe some of you guys will. What did it feel like? That that, that is a very difficult question. Um, so emotionally. Uh, like I said before, you know, it was four years of my life dedicated towards this one race um, at Victory. And then you have all these rush of memories, just like if you watch the film, right, just flashing through your mind. Um, and this is something that I tell everyone who asks me. The moment of, quote, victory, when I cross that line and then I stand on top of the podium and I hear the national anthem being played, and I hear 20,000 people in the audience all singing collectively, and they're genuinely happy, and they feel like they also have won. Um, like your favorite football team, baseball team, basketball team has won the world championships, or you know the playoffs, or whatever it is. Multiply that by 1,000, and you have 3.8 billion people watching a single race. Um, it was an incredible feeling, Bill, but in all honesty, when I look back on my career, the 40 seconds that that race occurred in, I remember perfectly every single millisecond of what was going on in my mind, what was going on in my body. But it's not the most important memory that I had within myself. Rather, the four years of journey getting to that Olympic Games before the race had ever started were the things that were most memorable and the most important to me. Because within those four years is when I really found myself. It's when I faced my most, you know, almost all of my insecurities, my self-doubts, my fears, those times when I didn't want to train, those times when I didn't think I was good enough. That's when, when I think I really found myself. Um, so looking back, the emotions were incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a moment of, of relief, uh, of gratitude, of strength, um, humble, to be proud, I mean, there's just really, you go through all the scales of human emotion. But the memories that I think about now are never crossing the finish line. Because to me, it was just simply another chapter in this entire book that we have called Life. And something that I learned so many incredibly valuable life lessons throughout that four year process, throughout that eight year process. When I was at my lowest point, when I was sick and I had to compete that day, um, and there's, there's literally a thousand different challenges. Uh, and anyone you can talk to who's become successful, these, these points at which we claim victory or we claim success are incredible, right? And we need these little micro and mesocycle goals, right, to place in front of us because we work obviously much better when something is seemingly a little bit out of reach and we just keep chasing that and chasing that. If we didn't have that, then we would kind of be very sporadic and all over the place. But 
that process that happens in between from the beginning until, quote, the end, which really isn't the end. It's only another starting point until you go on beyond. Uh, that process in between is really the most influential and the most powerful because those are the lessons that when you learn, whether you win, lose, fail, draw, whatever it is, the skill set that you acquire from that four-year process or one-year process or one-month process are so incredibly valuable. You can take those and learn from that, store that in the memory banks and apply it towards your next process, your next program, your next idea, your next presentation. Um, and I take that with me today. You know, I've been retired for five years and every single attribute and life skill that I learned through sport, and there was many, uh, I take that into the, the boardroom, whether I'm presenting to a Credit Suisse and doing a $10 billion raise for a natural resource project, or I'm presenting to Children's Hospital, or I'm doing something to a philanthropic group based in East LA. Whatever it is, the life skills and lessons that we have through the growth stage of our lives are really the most important. Right? And we all want to win. I mean, we're all competitive. I, I was one of those guys where I'd rather chop off my own fingers than to get second place. Like I, it, was, it hurt me to not win. More importantly, I, I, that's what I really cared about. I didn't want to lose. Right? It, was just, it was so painful to me. But looking back upon that, the lessons that I had in terms of molding my character and the things that I did, people ask me, Apollo, you know, did you ever get sick of skating in circles? You just go left all the time. Like, isn't that kind of boring? I think back, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of, it looks kind of boring. Um, but there wasn't one day in my entire career where I didn't want to go to the ice rink. And I look back on that. Even now, I look back and I was like, how was that possible for 15 years, you know, training 8 to 12 hours a day? There was no off season. Saturday nights, 9 o'clock p.m., lights out, right, when most of my friends were out partying. Um, I was at home from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. watching skating tapes and analyzing my competitors. That was my life because to me, the most important aspect of all was not simply winning, but it really was being able to reach the Olympic Games or finish that race, have my held held very high and say, you know what? I have zero regrets about the process. I've left no stones unturned in my preparation. And that to me is the ultimate victory. And as you grow, and with every year that passes you, you will understand that more and more and more. And utilizing these goals that we set forth in front of us are incredible markers in our life. Um, you know, Dr. Dorfman has one of the most incredible success stories in the world, but what happened be behind the scenes was a man who was driven so much by his own personal victory to be able to be the best he could be. That's the reason why he was so successful. It wasn't because he was lucky. It wasn't because someone gave him the chance. He carved his own way by himself. And every single person here in this room has that ability and skill set. You, you may not even know what idea it is that you have within you, but that point will spark at some point in your life. And when it does, man, you gotta follow it. You gotta not let go of this thing with anything you've got. My father used to teach me that all the time. He says, Apollo, sometimes lightning strikes twice, but you gotta make sure if it strikes, you hold on to it as much as you can and never let go. Because every single person in this entire world is given a different chance, a different opportunity. We luckily live in a country where freedom is, we work towards it every single day, but we have so much more freedom than the, most, the rest of the world. And we have so much more opportunity to become incredible leaders and have incredible skill set. The fact that social media is here today allows you to accelerate your idea, business, business partners, to a million percent overnight like this. You can create stars within seconds of being on the internet, right? It also comes with 
a high cost as well. And learning how to differentiate that between all is really the biggest value. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I know for a fact I would ball like a baby. <laughs> I mean, I, there's no way. Um, you know, it would be one thing if you won a medal when you were like 90 or 95. Because it's kind of like, you know, you work up to it your whole life and it's like, wow, what a payoff, you know? But you're a kid, you know? I mean, you know, here you hit this, this pinnacle in your life. And, you know, I know personally and I know from a lot of other people that I've seen attain great success, it's a weird thing because you've had this ultimate success and now you don't have that to look forward to. So what I want to know is what's, what's next? I mean, what's the next big challenge? And what's the thing that you're passionate about doing now and growing and, and working toward? Because you already did one big one that most people in this world will never, ever, ever do. What's next? What's next for me? Um, and that's a great question you asked, Bill, because you know, oftentimes Olympic athletes, you know, we never know, we never see what happens beyond the Olympic Games, beyond the glory. Well, what is next for an Olympic athlete? Um, for me, I was never satisfied with simply just becoming a gold medalist and then kind of disappearing uh, and not really doing anything. Um, just doing speaking engagements and perhaps a couple appearances. I was very driven and very hungry for success in the business world. And so in 2010, when I retired, I had an entire plan set forth in front of me to attack the investment arena. And the, you know, basically, I wanted to become a serial entrepreneur. I wanted to start my own companies. I wanted to run my own companies. I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to be the person that says, look, you don't want to work in two weeks, that's okay. You can go take a vacation because your company's doing so much success this past two years, you have that ability. I wanted that pure freedom for myself to be able to dictate when, 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 where, and how I was going to be able to work. So what am I passionate about now? Now one word, um, and that's people. All shapes and sizes, ages eight to 80. It doesn't really matter. Um, I love people, I love inspiration, I love the dynamics of connecting with individuals, I love the dynamics of connecting with people on an international scale. Um, I used to travel to Asia every 40 days, go to Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, Shanghai, Beijing, Manila, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thai, uh, we used to go all the way through Taitong, which is the southern part of Taiwan. I used, to, I used to travel all over the country and all over the different parts of Southeast Asia and Asia in lieu of my business hopes of becoming very successful. And so I looked at all the different arenas of business that were in all these different deals that were being brought to me, and I was able to whittle down to see which ones that I really thought were gonna be successful, number one. Number two, which ones I really thought were really interesting. So I looked at different businesses to me that were innovative, that were groundbreaking, um, and there was something there where I could bring an immense amount of value. Um, because I had been traveling the world at the age of 14 and going to different countries and I was winning so consistently wherever I would go whether it was in Russia whether it was in India whether it was in Sweden I would meet the same elite people and business minds every single year and this these faces started to become very familiar so I created these relationships with these individuals based upon friends not even because of business and 15 years later now when I travel around the world these friends and my business acumen have come to an area where they both meet. That's the sweet spot. Um, and so when you say, what am I passionate about now? It's, it's about people, it's about health. Um, I do a lot of philanthropic work. I always give back as much as I possibly can. 
but I, in all honesty, I love speaking to youth because people here in this room are the driving force. You guys are the driving force of change and what is going to be the standard in the next four to six years. What you like today, the things that are interesting to you is totally dictating the market. And the people who are creating these ideas, whether they're apps, whether they're technology, whether they're smartphones, whether they're experiences, they're all with, your, with, with you in mind. They're dedicated simply towards you. So think about that. Think about the strength that you have collectively being the age and this new millennial that you have. So I love that arena. I love the energy of youth. I think it's something that I learn from every single day. Um, and luckily I've had so many incredible life experiences. I was able to travel the world at the age of the 14, going to 12 to 14 different countries every single year for 15 years straight. Um, and now I have an opportunity to go into an arena of business, to meet world leaders, whether they're presidents, whether they're past presidents, to sit down with you know, someone like Bill Clinton in a resort somewhere and have an eight-hour conversation, a three-hour conversation with these people uh, about life. And learning from some of the most influential and powerful leaders in the world, not because they, they could give me uh, a, an open door towards another business opportunity, but because the mind of another individual is really where the most value is. And understanding how that person thinks, understanding that, that uh, persona, that charisma, their decision-making ability was something that I really thought was really, really valuable to me as an individual. And so that's what I was really attracted to was, was these types of things. And so... I love people, Bill. I mean, it's, it's, it, to put it simply, you know, I, I have so much faith in, in people. Um, as skeptical as I, as I am, uh, I still, I, I believe that people have incredible opportunities and chances to create massive amount of success. And we've seen it time and time and time again. And these are the ones that are gonna do it, you're right. You are the future of our world. You really are. Um, I'm going to open this up to questions now. If I could have the other uh, microphones down. You guys, we can ask Apollo a few questions before he, uh, he gets going. I'll just. Apollo, uh, once you realize, like this is kind of like Dr. Bill's question, but once you realize you had the ability to win uh, a gold medal in the Olympics, how did you deal with the newfound pressure and just all that like, expectations put on your back? So the, the newfound pressures and expectations upon um, hearing kind of the chatter um, amongst you know parents and teachers and my father um, and coaches of saying that I was going to be the next great great one um, it, it, it's a lot of pressure uh, but I found within myself I, I kind of thrived upon that pressure I thrived upon being clutch I wanted the ball there's three seconds left I want to be the guy to take the shot that, that's the mentality that I had um, because I had the confidence. And look, I didn't know that it was going to go in. And you may ask some other professional athletes say, I know it's going to go in. I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to win those races. But I believed there was a chance that I could. And that's all I needed was that there was a 1% chance that Apollo Ono could cross the finish line and become an Olympic champion. And so there was a transition that happened when I understood. And it took, look, it took, it took me to win a couple of races first, you know. Uh, to build up that confidence. That's the reality. But once I did, and I started to see, and I looked at these other athletes and say, that was, the, that was last year's world champion? I think I'm better than that guy. And I said, my teammates would be like, this, this guy's whacked out of his brain. He's crazy, right? But internally, I said, I, I really believe, I think I can beat this person. And so I started to write down. I said, okay, this is the reason why I think technically I think I can beat him. And I, I used to you know, analyze every single athlete. And um, I was so incredibly fanatical about my routine. And 
But that transition that happened, it went from training with a team to becoming very obsessive about, about my training and perfecting it, right? Not an almond more, not an almond less was the mentality. I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? So in 2002 was my first Olympic Games. I was 19 years old, okay? Uh, I weighed 165 pounds and I could leg press approximately 1,500 pounds, okay? Which is a lot of weight, okay? In the leg press, okay? Fast forward another four years, um, in 2006, four years later, I weighed at 155 pounds, and I could still leg press the same amount of weight. So my strength to weight ratio is drastically increasing. I basically took 10 pounds off that was a weight vest in my body, but I was still just as strong. So in my final Olympic Games, there was another transition that I had in my head, and I said, okay, if, I was gonna, if I'm gonna be relevant in this sport, in a sport that changes every two to three years, uh, and all the past competitors who I competed at when, from 1996 to the year 2002 were all retired. And now when I look in the coaches box, I skated against 80% of the coaches. That's not really a confidence builder for me, getting on the ice. Now I'm a veteran and they know me. So I had to come with a newfound plan and that, that mindset, that's really all it was, was a mindset to believe in myself and believe in the program that I set forth in front of me and do the impossible. So when I arrived in Vancouver in 2010, which was my final Olympic Games, I set a goal for my, myself to be 145 pounds and leg press like 1,700 pounds. I ended up being 141 pounds, shredded to the bone, 2.7% body fat. Um, I felt incredible, strong, powerful. My vertical was like 37 and a half inches um, and I could leg press 2,000 pounds at 141. So if you look at like a lineman in the NFL, a guy who weighs like 300 pounds, he leg presses about 1,800. Okay, so here I was, this scrawny kid who looks like a Tyrannosaurus Rex because I have no arms, right? And my legs are like ridiculous, um, leg pressing 2,000 pounds. And that was simply all mindset. I, I developed this concrete mentality to be able to handle any pressure at any time. And I thrived upon that. So to answer your question one more time, what did I do when the pressure started to build? I looked at it right in the face and I said, bring it on. I loved it. And there's no other way to do it. You have to, I didn't know what was gonna happen. And sometimes I was scared just like any other athlete on the planet or any other individual because I'm human, right? We have those fears of I'm not gonna do well, I'm not gonna be successful. There's three Koreans in the final, three Chinese and two Canadians, I'm the only American. And I used to love it. I used to love it. I used to, I used to wish that you could put four of each country in the race because I wanted that additional pressure because I knew if I could win that race, that was it. And by the end of my career, I had athletes who were, you know, claiming they were number one, they would come up to me after the race and say, Apollo, you're the best athlete in the world. And that was a validation. Um, and that carried on past my Olympic experience. You know, I did, an, I did an Ironman competition in Kona, Hawaii. Are you guys familiar with the Ironman competition? Yeah. So you know that this takes physical training, but most importantly, this is mental training. And the internal dialogue that you have out in Kona, which by the way is 100 degrees uh, temperature, 100% humidity. There's black lava rock on the left-hand side of the road, black lava rock on the right-hand side of the road. You swim 2.4 miles in the open water ocean, right, which is hot, by the way. You get out, you, you bike, you know, in a ridiculous amount for five to seven hours, okay? 100-mile bike ride, right? And then you get out, you know, and then you finish this with, you know, 100-plus mile bike ride, and then you finish with a marathon at the end of the day. And the ambient temperature in the middle of Kona is 136 degrees. Um, human beings are not designed for that type of sport. But during the last two miles of the Ironman, 
is when they say euphoria occurs, that state of nirvana, that place where the athletes who do the Ironman come back every single year and do it again. And when I was out there on the course and I was riding the bike and there was 40 mile an hour crosswinds and I was seeing people being blown off their bike and I'm riding up to Javi and back, I'm thinking in my head, I don't think this was really a good idea. I don't know who talked me into this. Where's the porta potty? I'm gonna go take a break, right? But then during, during that last two to four miles is when something occurs in your brain, you say, why haven't I done this before? And that's special. And that's when I understood the power of the mind because it wasn't about my physiological training. My GI tract, my gastrointestinal tract had shut down the last eight miles of the race. So every salt tablet that I was taking to retain the water, every water that I was drinking, all the food that I was eating was not getting absorbed. I was getting really bloated. So I was getting cramped, I was getting fatigued. I had my, basically I was running on empty and I had eight more miles to go in a nine plus hour day when my body has been overheating and running hot, right? Human beings are not designed for that, but we can overcome, we can persevere and we can continuously push on because of one single unmeasurable fact and that is what we contain in our brain. And there's nothing that, that we can measure today in today's science that shows the power of willpower. And we've seen that time and time again. You hear about that mom who lifts up that car to save her child who's underneath. That's not because she's a power lifter. This woman hasn't lifted weights in 20 years. Now, what occurs in the human psyche and ability to fire every single muscle fiber to do something like that? You can't measure it. It's still here. Now, if you can imagine, if you can do that physically, how and why not can you apply that towards what you're pursuing in your own path, whether you're doing art, whether you're creating a business, whether you're creating something to give back to a community, Anything is possible. And that's something the Iron Man taught me once again, that even when you're running on empty, even when it looks like you have no other options, the creativity of the mind will always find a way. And sometimes we have to push ourselves back against the wall in order to find it. Hi, my name's Natalia Latius. Um, did you have a similar mindset when you competed in Dancing with the Stars? That's a, yeah, uh, <laughs> wow. Good, great question. So Dancing with the Stars was an entirely different um, arena. Number one, it's, it's a produced TV show. Um, that's all I could say. i just say it's a produced TV show. Plus I'm wearing some very interesting outfits on the show. Um, sequins, rhinestone, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, they're not the most masculine feeling outfits on the planet. Um, but the experience was incredible. And did I have the same mindset? Yes, I, I did. You know, so my first experience was in 2007 with uh, my dance partner, Julianne Huff, who's now, she's a judge on the show. Um, and at the time, she was 18 years old. She had come here, she's from Utah, but she had went to study in London, her first time in Los Angeles. And she was ordering me around, I was 25 at the time, and I was like, who's this 18 year old bossing me around the room? Um, but. The one thing I think that really stood out for me was, I was just, we were just really willing to work extremely hard. Um, something to know about dancing is usually when people dance, there's a count, right? One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Whatever the dance is, there's a different rhythm and count. Well, Julianne and I, Julianne would always count, she just naturally does, right? Because she's, like she's a genius in dancing. I didn't count on the show. So, and she knew that. And so she used to basically make me dance alone with like a little Muppet figure. I think she used to do this as torture and just turn the music on when she'd get mad at me and just tell me to dance around in the middle, right? Um, 
But what we, what we started to do was just pure repetition. And with repetition came the hours and hours of training. We would do, we would do about 9 a.m. till about midnight almost every day, um, nonstop. And by the way, you're mic'd on the show. So you have a camera crew of two people who videotape you the entire 12-hour session plus every single day. Um, so you, know, you think about that. You're being mic'd. Every single thing that you say, every single face that you make, and you're dancing basically you know, like this with somebody the whole time. Um, after two weeks, you like want to strangle that person. That's just how it is, right? You just you can't stand them because. Um, but you're working together as a team, and you have one common goal, and we just work really hard. So, uh, I never thought I would say this, but an 18 year old taught me a lot about myself that I never thought before in my life. Um, and she's gone on to do incredible things. That whole family is incredibly talented. And the one thing that resonates true in that family was obviously they're all very gifted, but they work hard, very hard. Um, that's the common theme I think you guys are understanding here. Hard work can trump talent any day. Hard work plus talent, now you're talking something exciting. Okay, so for some of you who are not familiar with what he's talking about, the Stephen Bradbury incident, um, in 2002, I was 19. My first Olympic Games was in Salt Lake City. My first Olympic final, okay? I was, Sports Illustrated had me on the cover. Like, this kid's gonna win four medals at these Olympic Games. He's a phenom. I was like the most talked about. It was tons of pressure, blah, 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 blah. You've heard the story, okay? My first Olympic final, I get in the race. I'm in first place, two laps to go. I'm in complete control. I feel good. I have the afterburners on. I'm cranking. I'm literally, 15 seconds away from winning my entire life dream. One lap to go, right? 8.2 seconds remaining in a race. I'm still in first place. There's a Chinese skater behind me. He's trying to set up a pass. A half a lap to go. I'm less than four seconds away from winning my first Olympic gold medal. We get in a little bit of a tangle going into the final corner. Three seconds remaining. He falls down. I swing a little bit wide. A Korean skater is on my inside. He tries to skate on the inside to pass me. He falls, falls into me. Now remember, the Chinese skater fell down. The Korean skater falls into me and falls down. I fall down. And the Canadian skater who's behind him also falls down. Okay? By the way, this has never happened in the history of speed skating since this race. So you have the four, you have four guys. You have myself, the Chinese, the Canadian, and the Korean all fell down. There's two and a half seconds remaining in this race. Boom, 35 miles an hour, we hit the pads. I scramble, I get up as fast as I can, throw my skates across the finish line, and I see this other skater come out of nowhere and kind of whiz by. That skater was Stephen Bradbury. Australia. So, <laughs> not, I'm not finished, I'm not finished, okay? So this skater, was actually a half a lap behind. So if I showed you video on the final corner, you don't even know this guy's in the race because you can't see him, okay? He's so far back, he basically has got two arms in his back. He's just like, well, I hope something happens in this final corner. <laughs> and then boom, lightning strikes, right? The golden horseshoe comes up out of nowhere. Everybody's in the wall. This guy crosses the finish line. He can't believe what just happened. I'm trying to figure out what just happened. Who's this guy with the green skin suit flying by me? It was he even part of the race or was that a referee? Okay. Um, 
So Stephen Bradbury, by the way, he wins the first Olympic gold medal for the Winter Olympics for Australia in the history of the country. Okay? Yes. And uh, Stephen, Stephen's, a, Stephen's a very good friend of mine, but to make the matters even more outrageous, the way that, you know, because there's a prelim, quarterfinal, semifinal, and final, and you have to be top two to qualify past every round. So in the semifinal, you know how we got into the final? Everybody fell down. I'm like, I don't know what this guy's putting in everybody's skates, but it seems to be working. So Stephen Bradbury, who is an Aussie, who's a very close friend of mine, retired the day after the race. Um, and I remember this because three days before the final, Stephen Bradbury was actually working for the skate company that used to make my skates. And he called me and he says, oh, hey, hey mate, it's Bradbury. I got a quick favor. I know you're probably gonna make the final in a couple of days. Can you just give us a shot out and just kind of just so we can help promote our skate brand by just trying to get another promotion in our company. He didn't think he was gonna make the final, right? And here was a guy who was asking me for a shout out. Now he's standing on top of the podium. Um, and he became so famous in Australia, he has his own stamp. Amazing. So his story was called Last Man Standing, actually. And now in Australia, they say when like you, you hit the lottery or like you, you know, like a, a near death, you know, you miss near death, like a, a situation, they say, oh, you just pulled a Bradbury. Oh, hilarious. What a great way to end. Thank you so much. Amazing. To learn more about the Leap Foundation, go to leapfoundation.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Leap Foundation, on Instagram at Leap Foundation, and on Twitter at Leap Los Angeles. Listen to the Meet the Mentor podcast with Dr. Bill Dorfman on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.